Welcome to the Compliance 911 Show, a no-nonsense podcast discussing hot topics for today's busy compliance professional. It's everything you wanted to know about regulatory compliance, but we're afraid to ask. And now, here are your hosts, Dean Stockford of M&M Consulting and Len Suzio of Geodata Vision. With all the focus on redlining and disparate treatment, we cannot lose sight of the technical provisions around ECOA and uh, the Fair Housing Act. This podcast will address the technical regulatory provisions for treatment of credit applications under ECOA and the FHA. Welcome to our podcast series addressing everything you wanted to know about regulatory compliance, but were afraid to ask. I'm Len Suzio. Dean, I know that you've covered many aspects of fair lending, but can you expand on the more technical provisions for the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and the Fair Housing Act? Of course, Len, and this topic is timely given all the focus on other aspects of fair lending. I, I feel sometimes we become a little complacent and forget about the very technical issues uh, that we have to comply with in responding to applications under COA and fair housing. As you know, ECOA, which stands for Equal Credit Opportunity Act, and FHA, Fair Housing Act, deal with discrimination in the lending process. And we often focus on uh, many of the riskier areas within these acts to ensure institutions are not discriminating. However, there are many technical requirements for both ECOA and Fair Housing Act. The first real technical challenge when dealing with the COA and FHA is with credit applications in the clear a difference and distinction between an inquiry or an actual application for credit. An inquiry is when a potential applicant requests information about a loan product and responses are related only to the product information, such as rates, terms, products offered, and qualifying debt ratios. You know, Dean, uh, there is a very significant difference and big implications between an inquiry versus an application. I know an application actually starts the clock ticking for various uh, ECOA uh, requirements. Can you elaborate and uh, tell us what the challenges are between what's an inquiry versus an application? Yeah, fantastic observation as well. And yes, the timing requirements, as we talked about before, the technical aspects of it are, are very strict as to when we have to respond. An inquiry actually becomes an application for credit when the lender actually evaluates information provided by the applicant, decides to deny or accept the information, and it communicates that to the consumer or prospective applicant. Examples of an inquiry uh, are, do you offer HELOGs? Obviously, somebody's just inquiring as to, do you have them, do you not? What is the interest rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage? Do you require escrows on real estate loans? What are the terms of new cars? What kind of information do you need for me to start a mortgage? Do you offer student loans? As you can see, the creditor would provide basic information on product, but does not evaluate any credit worthiness. So the clock doesn't start ticking at that point. I'm going to throw you a little curveball here, Dean. That is, um, (laughs) can an application actually be an, an oral application or does it have to be in writing? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. And so let me just, clearly make a distinction. We, we talk a lot about consumer lending, um, but within the confines of consumer lending, when you start talking about residential mortgage loans, they actually require a written application. That does not mean that you can't have an oral request for credit. Uh, 
So we have to be very, very careful when we're setting our policy to make sure uh, that that uh, uh, we 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 clearly make that distinction um, in that we may require written policies, but it doesn't mean that you can't have an oral request for credit. Now, you know, with that said, Lynn, I want to say, you know, I, I've always I, I've always been asked this during training. Well, how is anybody ever going to know? Well, when you don't give somebody <laughs> something that they want and they become aggrieved, that's when it all will resurface. So, um, mm-hmm. and, and I, you know, look, my banking career goes back many, many years. I, I remember uh, the branching in uh, the examinations that we used to go through, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I would say maybe six months in advance. This is what used to happen. And I saw this a couple of times with regulators. I always called it old school, but I, I thought it was quite enlightening. Uh, they'd go in or they'd call, let's just say, a branch manager at a local branch. This is in advance of the actual examination. It's kind of the exam prep. They'd call the branch. They'd walk them through a series of characteristics. And those characteristics, based on the response of the uh, the individual on the other side of the phone, actually represented an application for credit. And mm-hmm. based on the conversation between the regulator in the branch or the loan officer at the branch or the branch manager. And so then what would happen is they would hang up the phone and they'd sit back and they'd wait. They wanted to see whether the bank was treating it as an application. And if so, whether they responded in writing to extinguish the clock accordingly. So as you can see, ECUA includes very, very strict timeframes, regardless of whether you have an oral application for credit or a written application for credit and the distinction of when is it an inquiry versus when is it a completed application. Now, because you, you, you bumped me off my, uh, uh, my game a little bit here, I think it's important to understand when we say an inquiry, we actually have, I, I like to think of the inquiry almost as an initial request for credit. So basically, we get in a request for credit. So I've, I've, I've kind of pivoted a little bit beyond the inquiry. Now we know that based on the loan officer's responses that we have a request for credit. Well, just because we have a request for credit doesn't necessarily mean we have all of the information required in order to give mm-hmm. a response of approval or denial. So does that mean we can just stick it on the back credenza and forget it? The answer to that is absolutely unequivocally no, of course not. The clock is still ticking. We haven't done anything with it. So while we have an application for credit and it may not be completed, we just can't stick it behind us and forget about it because that 30-day clock is still ticking. So what do we do? We send them a, a notification that says what we need, when we need it by. That stops the clock from ticking. And okay. uh, and, and, and what it does is it it now puts you into a different, it could put you in a different bucket depending on whether they provide the information necessary. Because if they do, then what you have is a completed application. So now let me get back to these timeframes. As I said, they're very, very strict. So ECUA includes mm-hmm. very strict timeframes for responding to applications. So once we have that actual request for credit, the regulation requires institution to respond within 30 days of that initial request for credit and 30 days to take action on a completed application. And, and, and that always gets just a little bit uh, 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 confusing to some. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. I, I could tell you, I have a lot of clients have stumbled over that topic. 
So it is a bit confusing. So what do you mean when you say the institution has 30 days from an initial request? I notice it does not indicate application, Dean. Yeah, well, that distinction is within the definition of application. Actually, Reg B provides that an application is, and here we go with your another question, is an oral <laughs> or written request for an extension of credit that is made in accordance with the procedures established by the creditor for the type of credit requested. And that's an emphasis added to the procedures established by the creditor. Um, once again, what we would consider a completed application may be a little bit different from, from institution to institution. In other words, the regulation leaves some flexibility with the institution to establish that. The flexibility refers to the actual practices followed by the creditor for making credit decisions as well as the stated application procedures. So as an example, if a creditor stated policy is to require all applications to be in writing on the creditor's application form, but the creditor also makes credit decisions based on oral request, then the creditor's established procedures are to accept both oral and written applications. So again, you can see where it gets a little bit confusing. So, so Dean, it appears that lenders have 30 days to take app an action on an application. Well, here again, you know, and I, I, I hate to split hairs, but you're partially correct. As I mentioned, you have 30 days from the initial request, and then you have 30 days from the completed application. So when that initial request comes in, I need a pay stub as an example, okay? So without the pay stub, I cannot render a decision. I need to have that pay stub in order to move forward. So what I have is I have 30 days from that point. What? How do I extinguish that clock? I issue a notice of incompleteness to the applicant that says, this is what I need. And in this case, the pay stub, this is when I need it by. So a time frame, a reasonable time frame, not necessarily 30 days mm -hmm. to receive that. And then it indicates that I will give no further consideration to the application unless they provide that. So, so that right there in itself stops that initial request time clock. If they then provide the information within the time frames that I've allotted, now we have what we call a completed application. Now your clock starts again. So now you have 30 days from that from that completed application to take action. And that action is either going to be an approval, a denial, a counteroffer, or in this case, if in fact we haven't rendered a decision, there's still an opportunity for the applicant to withdraw the request. So, um, so again, partially correct. The first provision, uh, as I indicated, mm -hmm. for the uh, requires the financial institution to respond to applications within that 30 days, and that always seems to be the toughest uh, in getting into uh, uh, to to the incomplete applications, but. Um, well, as I indicated before, as long as you send that notice that says, this is what I need, this is what I need it by, and I'll give no further consideration, that stops the clock. You can wash your hands and move on unless they provide it. And that's the, that's the key right there. Once they've provided that information and you have the completed, uh, completed application, now you can move forward. You have 30 days to actually take action on that application. So there's really two clocks running, it seems like, Dean. There's a clock that starts running uh, when you get the inquiry, uh, and then you you have time to respond to that. And then you have the clock that starts running when the application is complete. Could you 
elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, I may have conflated the two a little bit. It's actually the initial request, not necessarily the inquiry. An inquiry is, okay. is exactly that. They're just inquiring and mm -hmm. giving them basic information. We don't have an application. So it, it's okay. considered, uh, you know, an inquiry is an inquiry. There's no clock ticking at that point because we do not have an application by definition. However, right. the initial request for credit that comes in um, may not be completed. So we may not be able to, we, you know, I receive an application, doesn't make a difference whether it's oral, whether it's written. I receive an application. I don't have enough information on that application. I need to do something with it. But essentially, that's exactly what I'm saying is mm -hmm. that that clock from that initial request gives the, uh, the, the bank or the financial institution 30 days to get that information uh, and they have to notify the applicant within that 30 days to stop that clock. Once that information comes in, now you have a new clock, which now you have 30 days for the financial institution to either approve it, deny it, or make a counteroffer. And as I indicated, mm -hmm. you could have an express withdrawal if the applicant actually communicates that prior to a decision being made. Okay, so so once you have the completed application, you have 30 days to respond. What kind of or types of actions would you take, Dean? Yeah, well, that's a, absolutely correct. So I'm glad that we finally got to that point because it can <laughs> be rather confusing, as we know. Um, the regulation provides the following actions to be taken within 30 days of a completed application. Again, applicant withdrawal, and again, that must be expressed prior to our decisioning. And we must maintain records of that. It's it's very important. I always kept you know close eye on on the uh, withdrawals, especially when I kept seeing um, applicant wishes to withdraw better rate someplace else. Well, holy smokes! When you get a few of those, don't you want to take a look to see if you're priced in the market or out of the market? Um, mm -hmm. It only takes a few of those to to figure that out. The next action you could take is called a counter offer. And a counteroffer is actually a denial because we're denying the applicant based on the terms and conditions for which they requested. And so we're denying them on that, but we're saying, however, there's an alternative. And the alternative is this, and we state what that alternative is. Now, what I won't do today, because I think I'll just add to the confusion, is get into what we call model forms and the use of model forms because the regulators from time to time do put model forms out there and those model forms uh, can be used and i've always liked to break them down in two parts one is called compliance the other one is called customer friendly or consumer friendly um, and, and i'll just give you only one example and that's with the counter offer so when you think about a counter offer obviously we have to notify somebody that they've been denied and so the regulation offers an alternative to that. Instead of issuing an adverse action notice to the applicant saying, I'm sorry, we cannot approve on the terms and conditions for which you applied, uh, 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 applied, but here are the reasons why. And then checking the box to say, however, we can offer you credit under these terms and conditions. You just have to almost step back and think about that for a second. If you receive that type of notice in the mail, do you ever get to the counteroffer? And the answer to that most likely is no, because you're so aggrieved and so pissed, excuse my language, at, <laughs> the, fact, at the fact that they didn't approve it on the terms and conditions that you applied for, 
that you never even get to the counter offer. So the alternative mm. is this, what the regulators offer is a, is a single form. Notify them the counter offer. If they accept it, great, you can move on. If they don't accept the counter offer, then you have 90 days to go out with the adverse action notice after, uh, and that would stop the clock to, to notify them why they were denied on the initial request. Okay, so I digress a little bit. Let me finish up. I got two more bullet points. The other action <laughs> is adverse action. That requires specific written notice to stop the time or the technical 30-day clock from ticking. That says, I'm sorry, we cannot approve your request. It gives all possible reasons up to not exceeding four. And the reason why I say that is because uh, the regulators do not view it as useful to the applicant to deny them for more than four possible reasons. However, if there are four reasons evident in the application, you better hit all four. And the reason I say that is because you can't deny somebody twice for the same request. So if you denied somebody for credit and they came back and said, oh, you made a mistake, that wasn't my credit report, and they were right, and then all of a sudden you crunch the numbers and find out their debt to income is 90%, you can't then de to deny them because you didn't do it initially. So there's mm -hmm. another little quirk within the uh, uh, the the bullet points uh, as far as action. And then the last but not least bullet point is the approval. And again, ensure that the documentation uh, maintained on how the approval was communicated uh, is there because that, again, stops the clock. If you just approve it, um, then uh, without documenting when you approved it, how you notified the applicant, and all of a sudden the closing date is beyond that 30-day window, then you know it's really difficult for the institution to prove compliance. So it can be a little challenging. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so with each of these four actions, is written communication required or is it just merely advisable? Well, no, it isn't, is the short answer to that question. ECOA requires specific written notification when taking adverse action. And again, emphasis added, a notification given to an applicant when adverse action is taken shall be in writing and shall contain a statement of the action taken. Be careful, though, as we need to make sure that we maintain sufficient records to support compliance and record keeping requirements. So if we have an approval, we want to see how this was communicated to the applicant and when. And as I indicated before, if you have an expressed withdrawal, again, there's nothing to say, oh, we're going to notify you that you decided not to go through with the application. So that just doesn't make any sense. But still, to meet the record keeping requirements, we have to document who notified us, meaning were there multiple applicants? Which one of them notified us? And why do they not want to go through the request and document that um, to, again, support compliance, the date, who called, and, and, and how they communicated it to you? So, Dean, are there any other important provisions under a code that you want to present to the audience today? Obviously, so many, but we could never, uh, nobody would listen to the podcast long enough, <laughs> I'm sure of that. Uh, but yes, there are, uh, there are some additional provisions, uh, the collection of what we call GMI, that's government monitoring information, that's race, sex, mm -hmm. and ethnicity. It's very similar to uh, HMDA, um, the Home Mortgage mm -hmm. Disclosure Act, where they have certain provisions to document race, sex, ethnicity in, in, in government monitoring information for certain transactions. Reg B has the same thing. It's required for any purchase or refinance of the primary residence 
and that residence is also securing the transaction. So in addition to collecting the GMI, uh, regulations also deal with what we call spousal signature restrictions. Um, and I don't want people to get confused by the word spousal, um, even though that's how they refer to it. It doesn't necessarily need to be a spouse, but under Reg B, a creditor may not require the signature of an applicant's spouse or any other person other than a joint applicant on any credit credit instrument if the applicant qualifies for the amount in the terms of the credit requested under the creditor standards creditworthiness. That's a mouthful. But the rule applies to all open-end, closed-end, secured, and unsecured extensions of credit and business credit. This also requires the financial institution to document someone's intent to be joint on an application. It's, it's quite frankly, Len, an issue that dates back to 1968 uh, when uh, commercial lenders um, uh, believed that they could require the guarantee of a spouse merely because their uh, assets were listed on a joint financial statement that was presented, even though they were applying for individual credit. So hmm. obviously extends back quite a while and it's become such an issue. It's found its way into the consumer market as well. Now we have to document someone's intent to be joined on an application, typically by signatures or, uh, or initials on an application. We also have one other thing that I wanted to talk about, and that has to do with rules that exist for providing appraisals or other evaluations in general. A creditor shall provide the applicant a copy of the appraisal or other written evaluation that they developed in connection with the application for credit that would be secured by a first lien on a dwelling. So the creditor shall provide a copy of that appraisal or written evaluation promptly upon completion or within three days prior to the consummation of the transaction for closed end credit uh, or account opening for open end credit, whichever is earlier. So uh, a few extra provisions under ECOA. Um, not necessarily dealing with timeliness, but as you can see, there's a lot. Well, that's for sure. There's an awful lot of technical provisions within ACOA. Uh, it, it certainly understand, uh, makes me understand why it's important for financial institutions to have their personnel trained regularly about this, because it's easy to forget these little details that can be very important. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned training, as it's extremely important for financial institutions to have strong training programs and controls around the lending process. Dean, on behalf of the audience, I thank you for expanding on the technical provisions under ECOA. And I'm glad that uh, this is a recording. That means people can play it back over and over again to go over some of the fine points. I'm certain our audience found today's topic timely and helpful. This is Len Susio with GeoDataVision. And this is Dean Stockford from M&M Consulting saying thank you for listening to today's topic and please let us know of any additional topics you may like to hear in our future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Compliance 911 show. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. While you're at it, please give us a like and review to help others find the show. As always, links are in the show notes and you can always find us online at Compliance911show.com. Follow MM Consulting and GeoDataVision on LinkedIn for all the latest news and information on compliance hot topics. <laughs>